When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The quest for a good life has been a slippery struggle. The philosophers of ancient Greece believed happiness was bound up with notions of luck, fortune, and living virtuously. Many centuries later, in 1776, America's founding fathers declared the pursuit of happiness to be one of man's unalienable rights. But the key to being happy may well be not looking too hard for it. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what's the secret of happiness? My guest is a psychologist, Tal Ben-Shahar. He's a former Harvard lecturer, where his positive psychology course became one of the most popular classes on campus. Later, he founded the Happiness Studies Academy and wrote several best-selling books, including his latest, Happier No Matter What. Tal Ben-Shahar, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's great to be here, Anne. So I'm going to ask you one of the oldest questions from the Greeks onwards and probably before, what is happiness? Is it a feeling or is it a state of mind? So, and the answer is yes, it is both and more. The way I define happiness, and it does draw on the uh, ancient Greeks as well as the ancient Chinese, as well as uh, modern uh, psychology and neuroscience, is that happiness comprises five elements what I call the spire elements, spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational and emotional well-being. And these together make up a whole being, which is looking at the whole person and the well-being of each part of that person. And what are the distinct benefits of being happy? We all would rather be happy than not be happy, but can we in any way quantify what that brings? Beyond the fact that it feels good to feel good and it's part of our nature to pursue happiness and to want happiness for us and for others, there are also um, other benefits. For example, we are more creative, more innovative when we increase levels of well-being. If you increase happiness by even 3 4 5%, you become healthier, physically healthier. Your immune system strengthens. At work, you become a more productive teamwork or relationships in general improve. We actually live longer when we're happier. So there are numerous benefits, whether you're talking about a child in school, a a relationship or an organization 
we benefit a great deal from increasing levels of well-being. What is different to trying to find a science of happiness as opposed to other disciplines? Some people might even doubt that there is such a thing as a science of happiness. Why should we believe there is? The doubters have a point because for many years, the self-help or more recently, the new age movement has uh, had a monopoly over the field of happiness. And these were not evidence-based. And uh, many people have become cynical and rightfully so about what we can say about the good life. Well, over the past couple of decades, there has been a great deal of research on happiness, whether it's from uh, the field of positive psychology, neuroscience, uh, more and more economists. We can already provide evidence-based interventions to increase well-being. There's no question that in the next couple of years, we're going to make uh, huge strides forward in the science of well-being. Why did you decide to start studying this? I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. Over 30 years ago now, I was an undergraduate studying computer science at Harvard. I found myself in my second year doing very well academically, doing uh, very well in, in sports. I played squash, uh, doing quite well socially and yet being very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because uh, looking at my life from the outside, you know, things looked great. You know, I checked the boxes, but from the inside, it didn't feel that way. And, you know, I became suspicious then of the model that we have been uh, handed in many ways from generation to generation about what constitutes a happy life. To help me, I decided to leave computer science and move over to philosophy and psychology and uh, look at the works of uh, people like Aristotle, like uh, Lao Tzu, as well as, of course, modern psychology and neuroscience to help me understand, first of all, why I wasn't happy, and second, how I can become happier. And over your career teaching and studying happiness and positive psychology, what did you then subsequently learn about your own relationship with this? You said you started out, if you like, on your own personal quest. It became a professional interest, but it is very closely linked to developing ideas, to testing ideas. It's not only about simply saying, you know, I'd like to be a bit happier. Here's a few ways of, of trying it. So what did you learn along the way? The first lesson was about the relationship between success and happiness. We are told that the path to happiness is through success. So if you achieve certain milestones, you know, whether it's money, uh, prestige, accolades or likes, then you'll be happy. And it turns out not to be the case. In fact, the most successful people in the world sometimes actually are the ones who are least happy. Why? Because they think they should be happy. They think they have done the right thing in order to be happy. And they're not. And then they lose hope as well. In your book, you write about a paradox of happiness. The more we value it, the more we want it, the more we think about it, the more elusive it often becomes. So what do we fundamentally get wrong about that? And if at the same time, we're often asked these days to be more self-reflective. But I wonder whether that doesn't set us up for failure if in doing so, we become so obsessed by the quest that we become less happy. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is a um, very important misunderstanding because on the one hand, we're told happiness is important. We know it's important. We want it. We desire it. And yet, if we actually wake up in the morning and say, 
I want it, or it's important for me to be happy, we become less happy. How do we resolve that? I mean, do we fool ourselves? Do we tell ourselves, well, I'm, I don't really want happiness, you know, wink, wink. That's, of course, not the solution. What we need to do is we need to pursue happiness indirectly. So let's say you walk outside and the sun is shining and you look at the sun directly. You will actually hurt your eyes. However, if you take that sunlight and you break it down into its uh, elements, the colors of the rainbow, you know, using a prism, then you can actually look at those colors. You can look at the sunlight and enjoy it indirectly. It's the same with happiness. So, for example, if I wake up in the morning and say to myself, I'm going to invest more time in my relationships, then this is an indirect way of pursuing happiness that's going to increase my well-being. Or if I say to myself, uh, I'm going to be more physically active, that is another indirect way of pursuing happiness. Or uh, I'm going to savor, appreciate what I have in my life rather than take it for granted, then I will increase levels of happiness because then I'm pursuing it indirectly, enjoying the metaphorical colors of the rainbow, so to speak. Now, you've outlined five core elements that you say lead to happiness. You call this the SPIRE model. Very important to have an acronym on, on, on this show. We like an acronym on The Economist Asks. But can you explain a bit more about SPIRE and how we might apply it to our own lives? Let me begin with the first element, which is spiritual well-being. Now, of course, we can experience spiritual well-being in, in religion, and many people do. However, more broadly, spiritual well-being comes from uh, a sense of meaning and purpose, and we can experience that in our work, uh, in our family. Spiritual well-being is also about being present, uh, being in the here and now. So if I focus, whether it's on a conversation or on a, on a tree outside my window and really be present to it, I'm connecting to spiritual well-being. Then we have physical well-being. Physical well-being, for instance, is about physical exercise. You know that regular exercise, as little as 30 minutes three times a week, is equivalent in its impact on our psychological well-being to our most powerful psychiatric medication. After spiritual and physical well-being, we have intellectual well-being. And that's, for instance, about curiosity. You know, research recently came out showing that people who ask questions, who are uh, always uh, learning, are not just happier, they're not just more successful, they actually live longer. This is very reassuring if, like me, you ask questions for a large part of your living. Especially given that um, we've been told that curiosity kills the cat and, uh, and unfortunately it's the opposite with us humans. Gosh, presenters everywhere will be, will be relieved to hear that, but do go on. And then there is relational well-being, the R of Spire. Number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Things like kindness and generosity are very much connected to, to the good life and to a happy life. And finally, emotional well-being. When it comes to emotional well-being, it's important to learn to deal with painful emotions, not by rejecting them or ignoring them, but, but actually by embracing and accepting them. The paradox here is that when we reject painful emotions, they only grow stronger. And when we accept and embrace them, they do not overstay their welcome. Under emotional well-being, we also have the cultivation of pleasurable emotions, such as gratitude, such as joy and love, that are, of course, an important part of happiness. 
Where does your model leave financial well-being? Because the old saying is that money can't buy you happiness. A lot of people probably might disagree with that or simply think that money, if it can't buy you happiness, can help you purchase less misery. I don't include financial well-being as part of the SPIRE model. The reason why I don't include it is because it's not primary to our um, whole person as is our rational capacity or as our emotional life. However, finances do matter a great deal when it comes to basic needs. So if our basic needs are not met, then of course that's going to adversely affect our happiness levels. But once we are beyond this notion of, of scarcity or poverty, then money contributes very little, or rather additional money contributes very little to our uh, overall well-being. Having said that, it's also important to understand how to spend money. There's a lot of research showing that buying experiences contributes more to our happiness overall than buying things. You talk a lot about why experiencing hardship is important for happiness and about anti-fragility. It's a concept that was introduced by the statistician Nassim Taleb, who's actually been a guest on the show in the past. What's the difference then between anti-fragility and resilience? I must say, um, when I read about Nassim Taleb and anti-fragility, it was an eye-opener. And to my mind, um, an extremely important concept to adopt into our uh, toolbox. Because um, anti-fragility is essentially what I see as resilience 2.0. Traditional resilience is about the ability to bounce back. You put pressure on certain material, if it's resilient, it goes back to its original form once you lift that stress. Resilience 2.0, anti-fragility, is about bouncing back higher. So if you put pressure on certain material, it doesn't just go back to its original form, it actually grows stronger, bigger, better. Now it turns out that there are anti-fragile systems all around us and within us. You go to the gym, you put stress on our muscles. Over time, they don't just bounce back. They actually grow stronger, bigger, healthier, better. As a result, we are an anti-fragile system. Not just physically, psychologically as well, potentially. If we introduce certain conditions in place, such as, for instance, having time for rest, then our anti-fragile system kicks in then we actually become stronger, not just more resilient, but better able to deal with things as time goes by. Uh, We also know that when we cultivate healthy relationships, these relationships provide the foundation for an anti-fragile self. And especially during these times, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's the economic uncertainty, whether it's the conflicts and the schisms that we unfortunately see all around us, It's so important to cultivate these very conditions that lead to anti-fragility. And they cannot uh, eliminate the possibility of breaking down, of being fragile, but they can significantly reduce the likelihood. 
You were talking earlier about how the ingrained idea of achievement equaling happiness uh, has its flaws. But how do you think the idea of chasing success should be reframed, given that most of us live in a world, whether it's in the workplace or whatever we, we believe to be important to us to have done with our lives, where we do want some form of achievement. We don't want to sense that we went through life and didn't achieve something. So first of all, there are different kinds of achievement. You know, it's, it's very different if I, I strive for an achievement that will merely provide me with prestige or accolades versus an achievement that is personally meaningful to me, that I think is important, that can contribute in a meaningful way. What we also need to do is we need to better understand the real goal of goals. So traditionally, what people believe is that the goal of goals is to contribute to our happiness, when in fact, the goal of goals is to liberate us to enjoy the journey. Let me give you another uh, challenge uh, on that, if I may. Let's talk about happiness in the workplace, which is something companies at least claim to give more attention to. A lot of employees, particularly millennials, say this matters a lot more to them than a success-driven model. And everybody is somehow trying to accommodate to this, sometimes more or less successfully, but often with a lot of misunderstandings along the way. How can companies actually evaluate how this would work in terms of that balance that you described between achievement, what we think of as achievement, but also how we motivate people to be a happier place? Skeptically, I wonder whether these two great goals, I think it's philosopher Kant who says the great goods cannot always live together. And yet we, we're talking as if they can. And increasingly, we're talking as if your workplace can make you both successful, hugely useful to your company and happy. Are we asking too much? Well, they can potentially coexist because we know that people who are doing something that is meaningful to them, that is important to them, will actually invest more time, more effort, will be more creative, will also be more pleasant to work with. Meaning and success or a purpose and achievement are, in fact, two sides of the same coin. Focusing on these things that are important, that matter, that are meaningful, will not just increase levels of well-being in the workplace, which it will. It will also actually increase productivity, creativity, and overall success. What about this measuring of global unhappiness? The analytics firm Gallup has been busying itself with this. They say it's on the rise. It's been increasing for over a decade. It has been, uh, for many reasons, a difficult decade in many parts of the world. And the five main causes of unhappiness that they point to are poverty, broken communities, however you measure that, hunger, loneliness, and the scarcity of good work. I wonder about this because I think if we took a very longitudinal view, we might well find that a lot of societies in the past were unhappier, but that measuring it and going and asking people about it is going to produce a result that says unhappiness is growing. Am I just a, an old cynic? We didn't measure happiness, at least in the same way that we do today, 100 years ago. So we don't really know. What we do know, we have more recent trends. And what we see more recently is more unhappiness. And the reason, to a great extent, has to do with COVID. 
you know, initially when people were told to stay home, you know, many people enjoyed it, you know, less commute and, you know, more free time. But that was just a temporary outcome. Uh, within three, four months, we saw that people were getting more stressed. We see depression levels are rising. And that has to do with the most important ingredient of happiness missing. And that is interaction, face-to-face -face interaction. What we need is a very extreme intervention now of the basics. John Clifton, the head of Gallup, argued in a column he wrote for The Economist that well-being inequality is as serious as income inequality. He thinks policymakers should weigh in. How do you think governments should improve happiness and what solid policies could help them and which countries do well at finding them? To my mind, the most important thing that a government can do, the most important place where it can intervene is education. Children are learning how to do math and they learn about history and geography, which are of course important. But why are schools almost entirely ignoring the science of well-being? And you know, I would have understood that 30, 40, 50 years ago when we didn't have a real science of well-being, but today we do. Why aren't we teaching children and adults these things and, and we're paying a very high price for it. But which countries are doing better? Because if we take international statistics, there seem to be completely different data points and it can look like cherry picking. If you go to a very stressed country, you're going to find high unhappiness. If you look towards the kind of middle of the democratic prosperous spectrum, is there really that much of a difference? Yes. So when, when we look at the international statistics, uh, we see small differences, significant but small differences among the democratic countries. Of course, poverty has a, a major effect on happiness. But once we get to, as I mentioned earlier, the basic levels of prosperity, um, basic needs are met, then there aren't big differences. What's more important for countries to do is rather than look at international statistics, look at intra national statistics. The question for a government is how do you increase levels of happiness in schools? How do I increase it in the communities in my country? How can we get people to be more physically active? How can we create the conditions for more in-person interactions, whether it's through parks? And speaking of parks, how can we create more, more green? Because we know that contributes to happiness. So there are many things on the macro and micro level that a government can do. Comparing to other countries, other nations, other cultures is interesting, but somewhat problematic because of the different ways that we define happiness, because of the different cultural expectations when we're asked about happiness. 2022 is drawing to an end. Many of our listeners will be thinking about their New Year's resolutions. I think I'll just get mine out from last year and, and rerun them and see which ones I achieved. I think it's probably about one out of three. But what are your tips on setting realistic resolutions that are aimed at happiness as opposed to our tendency to say they're going to tidy the sock drawer, we're going to fix the leaky tap, we're going to get the next big deal or the next job? You know, what is... The, a list that feels healthy and balanced like to your mind? It has to be, uh, as you pointed out, realistic, meaning less rather than more. Uh, so having uh, 20 things on my list, it's likely to be a repeat next year. But if I have, you know, one, two, at most three things on, on my list, 
and then follow through with them using the three R's. So create reminders. So let's say physical exercise is one of my New Year's resolutions, then actually put a reminder in my calendar, you know, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 7 p.m., go out for a run or, or whenever that may be. Make sure you repeat those things that you commit to so that they can become rituals. You know, no one needs to remind you to brush your teeth. It's a ritual, it's a habit, it's second nature. We need to get to the same place when it comes to the changes that we want to introduce in our lives. Tal Ben Shahab, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Anne. And do let me know what happiness means to you. Right now, it might be the Christmas deliveries arriving on time without the doorbell ringing in the middle of the recording, because that happens. Write to us at podcast@economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. There are plenty of articles from The Economist to keep you happy. You could try our sniff test on the curious rise of the scented candle and why lighting one has become part of a wellness routine. You'll find that article and many others on our website, but you do need to be a subscriber to read it. So if you're not signed up, then why not do so today? We have a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back next week with one of our favourite episodes of 2022. But this is a particular Christmas wrap for me. My last Economist asks after nigh on a decade on this show. In 2023, I'll be on mic elsewhere, but do stay in touch. There's plenty to enjoy on Economist podcasts coming up in the year ahead. So this comes with particular gratitude from me to our great audiences out there all around the world. And for all your thoughts, your answers and your challenges that you've sent us down the years. If you know how the podcast Sausage Gets Made, it is a team effort all the way. So the biggest thanks go to my producer, Alicia Burrell, the bookings producer, Melanie Starling-Condon, and the executive producer, Hannah Mourinho, and to all who've made this show. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> <laughs>